0: Digital communication—you all know you're studying this. How the digital revolution has literally changed the world, um, not only the way people consume uh, fashion and luxury, but also the way people approach it. So it's not only about e-commerce or buying and selling and a change in logistics, but it's especially, I believe, and hence, Jonathan, it's especially about uh, how the brands manage to change the narrative and speak the language of uh, societies, it's not top-down anymore, it's bottom-up, you have to listen to the people. Anyway, I believe that Gucci has done it better than any other brand in the fashion industry. Uh, the figures of Gucci in the past three years show it. It's not only about an incredible creative director and a great CEO, but it's also about the language that Gucci has started talking in the digital era. So before i ask you to explain us what you do <laughs> i would like to underline that it's not going to be about gucci per se but it's about how gucci used the media to get where they are and so talk about the actual uh, digital communication but it would be nice to understand what does your title mean and what you what, what are your responsibilities within the company
1: so I'm a bit of a jack of all trades within marketing and communications, but my team focuses on four key areas. So uh, one of the first is called product marketing. And so product marketing is rather unique to Gucci specifically in the sense that we're not specific to a marketing touch point. So we use all of the marketing and communication touch points and we're really closely linked uh, to different functions outside of the communications department, including our merchandising, retail, Gucci.com business units, the design office. So we're really almost like a connective tissue between the organization. And simply put, we have a very simple core mission that distinguishes product marketing initiatives. One is our campaigns are designed to speak to customers as our primary audience. In fashion there's a lot of different activities that aren't always targeted to our customers or thinking about your customers first and foremost and and understanding their perceptions. So we're always thinking about the customer first and then the second is that we're tied to a more specific business objective, whether it's launching a product, creating more awareness around a category. So it's very simple, customer first tied to a business objective. Um, The second area... Which is what
0: marketing should be, actually.
1: (laughs) The second area is called partner marketing, and um, it's more specific to some of our business operations. So um, when we work with wholesale accounts, so if we run a campaign with um, Net-A-Porter, how our outlet business units can also market Gucci products. So there's a a variety of different sort of partners that we work with that we need to help co-curate the messaging around the brand. So that's one of the other divisions. Then on the other side is where I get into more Uh, customer consumer centric sort of activity. So consumer analytics and insights is is underneath me. And so that's exactly what it sounds like. Our team has access to our our data and produces not only sort of practical dashboards and KPIs for the companies, but they're also the ones who can look at customer profiles. They work on how we segment um, our segmentation strategy for our customers. And then the fourth team is called consumer campaign. And that's actually sort of a hotbed of a lot of really fun technology. Um, it, the team currently oversees our email marketing program, our digital surveys to clients, if how we send SMS out, uh, text messages out to clients around the world. But they're also working on a lot of new technologies that sort of take our amazing and creative content and are using technology to serve increasingly personalized messages and marketing campaigns to clients based on the data we have on them.
0: Okay, so when you say are using technology to do that, it means that through technology you can find out what they want?
1: Well, so from... Or what they stand for? So from our consumer analytics team, we're able to actually get a great deal of information and we can make assumptions on different audiences within our customer base. So even a customer who might have purchased three pairs of the same shoe, it's like, okay we know something about this customer, they love this one style, that's already a, a, a very simple insight to then activate on. But unless you're sort of looking at your audiences and looking at customer behavior to find those patterns to then activate creative thinking, it's it's a little bit difficult. So the analytics and insights team is already, has to look through the different patterns and find audiences. And then with different technology tools, we can start to begin to, uh, Implement and deploy different uh, customer journeys, and so we're in the piloting phase of this new technology. And yeah, so
0: are you telling us that all the data inform creativity?
1: No, not that the data informs creativity. But if one of the unique things about Gucci is that as much as we are all, we, and we always will be a product and retail company, mm. over the last four years, we've also equally become a content company. But so. Within our content suite, we have so much messaging from a campaign on men's tailoring with Harry Styles to a beautiful jewelry campaign to you know, whether or not we're looking at lookbook imagery versus our institutional advertising. We have, and then that's not even counting all the digital, con- digital editorial content created by our social media team. So if you line up that asset suite you know, and the different messages associated with it, There's so many ways that you can pull from that um, to then deploy to the right audiences at at any given time. So it's not that the, the behavior is driving the creative, it's more about how do we match all the creative we have with different audiences at the right time, also within their customer life cycle. So if we know a customer has recently purchased with us and that they're not likely to purchase again for the next four or five months, we should sort of tone down commercial messaging and sort of give them a brand hug with fun, creative messaging. And we have this massive suite of content now to sort of say, okay, given where this customer is within their life cycle, let's change from a more commercial tone, talking about newness and product, to talk about more fun, inspiration. And that's always the balance of what we do in sort of product marketing. It's never one or the other. It's always finding the right balance, but... We can now pay a little bit closer attention to our customer is in the life cycle. But how do
0: you give when you say we can give that customer something more, you know, like lifestylish or whatever? How, what do you mean by give?
1: So it comes down to the different customer touch points that we activate. So, you know, do we want to change the tone of our email campaigns that we're sending out and give them more sort of background, behind the scenes look? Uh, If our social media advertising what what are those customers being targeted with what the messaging look like we can also and we're starting to test with this new technology we can send tasks to their preferred sales associate so you know there's different points of activation and we're looking at how we can orchestrate them in a way that's a bit more reactive to what we know about the customer but then there are plenty of customers that we don't really know enough about that we have to cast a wide net and 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 learn. For that, there
0: is the brand in general, I exactly. guess, because um, this is really down to the specific and its analytical marketing, which is very important. And, and the digital era is open, so many possibilities. The sky yeah. is the limit. Um, however, one of the things that uh, I I notice, as you know, in general from outside, is what Gucci has done with its language. I mean, you were there, via the, through the change, yeah. you know, from the previous creative director to the new newish now um, uh, CEO and creative director and a totally different language, a totally different style, something much more modern. And the, and the uh, figures say that Gucci could increase the number of millennials, the famous young people, um, actually acquiring goods. So not only being fun, but also being customer of, what, 100%, 200%. I mean, the figures are outstanding. And that, I think, goes down to the language. Yeah. Can, can we know a little bit more well, about yeah, that? Of I course. mean, was that a strategy sitting down and saying, oh, we need to talk to <laughs> millennial," or it was just a natural...
1: No, 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 it wasn't. And if you look at our strategy, we're not focused on any particular age group. Because everyone always asks me, mm-hmm. which demographic do you focus on? And I always give this sort of story. Like, if you tell a good joke, everyone around the table should laugh. Not just the young kids, not just your parents, not just your grandparents. If it's a good joke, everyone around the table will smile. It's the same thing with brand language. Mm. If it's a good story, you can hook in everyone. And at the time of the brand repositioning, uh, we spent a lot of time sort of internalizing and completely redefining our brand platform at Gucci, um, including how we would eventually communicate. Uh, this was even before we saw, we saw Alessandro's first collection. So we went... Alessandro,
0: Alessandro Michele yeah. as a creative director, in case someone didn't know.
1: Um, and so, luckily, what sort of blossomed over time and as we got more sure of our our new voice and uh, and was that what Alessandro does creatively is so layered and so rich. Um, and he also... Uh, incorporates our house codes, but also with new symbols that are very relevant. And he has a very inclusive approach to sort of beauty, fashion, and creativity uh, that's really harnessed around this idea of self-expression. And so that inherently, and what he does inherently, uh, resonates with the millennial audience. But it wasn't in the reverse. It was more, we've really been benefited from sort of this, this notion of self-expression and how that can uh, inspire different people. And so over time what we've seen is that these sort of, this way of speaking creatively has really resonated repeatedly with the audience. But it's true, in luxury you start with creativity first, not, not in the reverse. So, And that's really the approach we take at Gucci.
0: You make it sound easy. It's not. But <laughs> You know, I grew up in fashion and in communication in a time where DNA was the master of everything and the logo could not be touched. And, uh, you know, all these things that were like... framing communications and creativity within a frame that sometimes were a little bit of a prison. And then now Gucci has, like, a tiger as a symbol or the word love. and. Gucci, Gaki with a Y, like they say in America, and Gucci is a verb, I feel Gucci, Gucci-fied, and whatever, you know, you name it. And that, I think, is the perfect situation for marketeers and creatives. So I guess that the fact that everybody has become so brilliant creatively inside is probably also contagious. It comes from
1: the top. Yeah, well, there's an openness to, to creativity, but it goes through a very you know, as open as we are uh, to have a consistent brand voice and approach also globally, we go through, we have a system internally that goes through a very strict curation process. So, you know, what might have been a way in the past of how some fashion brands were operating to very, very strict codes, I would say we still have that operating mentality. It's just, we now are more open about different sources of creativity and collaboration that then go through a very strict curation process to make sure that everything feels relevant and authentic to our brand, and that it's not just something that's a gimmick or something that's coming from left field. So even though you know there is this degree of flexibility in what we're doing, it is going through a very rigorous curation.
0: Well, that brings me to something that, especially in the digital era, has become more and more important, it's authenticity and it's one of the words that were at the beginning of your thing. I believe that today, if you're not authentic, but you try to be someone else and everybody has copied Gucci in communication, in styling, in everything in the past four years, then it's, it's creepy, it's like it gives you goosebumps. And uh, Gucci is very authentic and I've spoken uh, two years ago about one of your collaborators, Coco Capitan, the photographer slash poet, whatever, and she told me that, you know, you just get a phone call and Alessandro Michele calls you in Rome and it, they give you a room and they say, do whatever you want. But then you have to, whatever you, is your creativity, you have to exchange with him and make it into something that is authentically Gucci or good for Gucci, which could go from playing with the logo to writing poems on walls of Milan, right? So... Is that what happens, I mean, in collaboration, I would like to know it from inside, actually, uh, the meaning of collaboration and authenticity and so the use of it in your data and how you send it out to clients, customers, well, so whatever.
1: So I do think the company has become really unique in terms of how it collaborates and giving people the freedom to, to work with us. But again, you know, the, the people that we're inviting to collaborate with us are people we believe in. so, And a lot of this comes from Alessandro directly. It's, it's not coming from anywhere else in the company. So, so it's not a marketing research? No, no, no. So the fact that they're choosing partners that they believe in, I think, and this is pure conjecture, because I'm not involved in that side of the process, but it's just it's sort of common knowledge. By choosing people you believe in and artists you appreciate, if you then give them the freedom to do their thing, it, it works out better versus inviting someone in that you're sort of going to control and manipulate their vision so it works on all sides but by choosing true creative collaborators and it's I think that's where the magic is happening mm-hmm. and then from us the the storytelling from a marketing perspective is always so rich because you have you know these great people some of these are young artists some of them are you know other artists who have really significant careers and the storytelling is always fascinating you know. Um, and getting to have a different angle or a different perspective to then showcase your you know to your to your customers and to people who just love the brand is always exciting and you know Coco's a great example I, so for Coco Capitan, I remember first hearing about her when we were looking into new photography um, options when we were relaunching gucci.com and then that was the first time I was exposed to her her body of work in the marketing department was through e-commerce photography and then it just blossoms organically from meeting a great creative that everyone believes in
0: and by the way a very young person because one other thing that you guys do is giving a floor to to foster the creativity of very young people unknown people usually the top brands in the luxury industry they they only work with top names you know the same five yeah. photographers the same three stylists the same to our director or whatever and whilst Gucci is going out and picking this, you know, new talent that will be the future, yeah. right?
1: No, and, and that's super fun and I also think that's one of the, the ways, you know, that wasn't a strategy I think that was put mm-hmm. in place to target millennials, it's, we're not, that's not how we work, it was sort of part of the creative process and then I think that also then opens up all these sub communities around each of these artists to then engage with our brand in a new way. So, you know, each of these different people that we touch have communities and, and groupings around them. And so then it has an echo effect also, bringing the brand into other people's lives. Mm. And so, and I think that also, this notion of these artistic collaborators and the community that's been created has also really resonated strongly with younger audiences.
0: Yeah, I interviewed your CEO recently. And- he said one thing that resonated a lot with me, and he said, changing culture is not, it can't be a mandate. It cannot be a strategic objective. It has to happen over time. And one thing he did, and you guys did, is to have this shadow executive committee. So there's these young people that are chosen internally to challenge what the top executive in the company
1: yeah.
0: decide. Right? So. My question, I know it's not exactly what you do, but you're an executive in, in the group, so you you would know. It's and I like, was
1: part of that
0: group. <laughs> uh, okay. So how does that work? I mean, do younger people really have a voice in you know marketing and data analysis or understanding how to talk a language that in the digital era is relevant? Because you can't talk the same language of a double sp- spread in Vogue. It's a different thing. So. Yeah. Is that real? How did it happen? Can you tell us? <laughs>
1: well, the Shadow Committee is real. I don't even know if that's the real name of it, though. But that's what he said, so I <laughs> yeah, do yeah. No, I, we did have this, we called it the Shadow Comics, but it was sort of a very informal name. But it was a group of us who met regularly. We were sort of younger people within the organization who were also very, you know, also operationally on the front lines so you know we were executing projects and driving a lot of things so um, a lot of us also could have a very operational perspective too about some of the challenges we might have been facing and we were able to bubble up different ideas to Marco and have an unfiltered. Marco is the CEO. We would have unfiltered access to the CEO in a way that you could just have a conversation being like this is an idea we had like what do you think and within five or ten minutes of Talking and ideating, he would give you feedback about. Oh no, that's a good idea. Let's move forward with it.
0: But that's extraordinary. This is a company with what, twenty thousand employees. It's not a tiny, you know, no, startups no, no. with seven people in an office. We're talking, you know, countries and people. So to have the top person,
1: yeah, was, you know, having
0: his door open, and that's I think hence the success.
1: But it's it's, it's remarkable. It's not normal. No, 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 no. <laughs> and. Um, you know, it wasn't just initiatives like that. There were also a lot of these lunches that were happening with the executives where different people from all over the organizations were having these, just an hour and a half lunch with executives where they could bubble up feedback about issues they might be facing or ideas they might wanna, you know, harness and potentially empower. And so we had, you know, from the shadow committee to these very informal lunches, all these ideas sort of bubbling up um, within the organization and, you know, some of them don't get executed, or some of them were complementary to other initiatives that might have already be, been underway. And other times these new ideas were greenlit and empowered and six months later something was being piloted and, and rolled out globally. So it, that in and of itself became a huge mechanism for uh, harnessing creativity in the sense from like all aspects of the business. You know? mm. and,
0: and do you treat differently creativity that goes into digital, so whatever is in the communication, publicity, whatever, and creativity that still goes into the classic communication, like print, PR, or store, windows, brick and mortars, whatever? Is that something you
1: Well, work so with? we have, you know, for each one of those marketing and communication touch points or retail touch point like the windows... We have a team of experts who are super at, you know, making the best windows, the best catalogs, you know, Alessandro has also a team around him that, you know, internal, internally and also externally, partners he works with, uh, you know, Christopher Simmons based in London is a really small advertising agency that we work with they're not really an advertising agency, they're like a creative studio. They're a studio. creative agency, yeah. Exactly, and uh, so they, they work on our advertising campaigns hand in hand with Alessandro, but this is another young team of like, super creative people in London, um, and they work on all of our advertising campaigns. Mm-hmm. So within each of those customer touch, touch points, we really have now assembled some of the industry's best people, but also some of them might be also super young who have been empowered to work with us, um, and so I would say touch point by touch point, we really have great teams. And again, there's a really strong internal curation process to make sure that everyone is sort of aligned on our, our messaging and, and making sure that there's consistency in, in what we do. So how do you
0: do that? You meet between departments?
1: We meet all the time. We email, <laughs> we text, we call. It's uh, I wish to say, since we're running so fast and every you know fashion is just... A rapid cycle, every you know, every three, three months, months now, we're yeah. introducing new collections. So uh, it's fun, organized chaos, as I would like to say. And then, you know, we also, within Alessandro's team, there's a, there's, we have great points of reference who also help us get feedback. So uh, Alessandro's
0: then, team is the designers, the, yeah. the fashion designers. Yeah,
1: yeah, but he also has a team um, called Creative Services, And sort of they're one of our main touch points in marketing and communications for approvals on anything, you know, that's not product related. So, you know, if
0: Does he approve everything? Every campaign?
1: A lot, almost everything goes through him that is customer facing. That's also pretty remarkable because in addition to being the sole designer for all of our categories. You know, him well, and his team has around about him are 100
0: people behind,
1: right? But it's, it's also pretty unique if you think about the other brands. You know, we have one vision for all of our categories, um, and that also, I think, competitively differentiates us. If, if you look at some of our main competitors, they have a very distinctly different voice for women's from men's, and even their store concepts are drastically different. Gior, yeah,
0: not to mention anybody <laughs> <Yeah>. else,
1: <laughs> but so you know, for us, we have one unified vision. And I think that's really, really powerful. And it's kind of amazing what him and his office are able to accomplish in a year. It's, you know, it's, it's prolific.
0: So. Yeah, he's a sort of a volcano of creativity. Yeah. Um, I, I have other things, but I've seen some very interesting things. These are questions that come from you. And so I wanted to start looking at this. There was one that I was particularly interested. It's written very small. <laughs> Um, what type of content do you believe is going to be the most efficient in terms of connecting with the fluidity of Generation 2? <laughs>
1: um, so I think, again, with younger audiences and particularly the, the next generation coming through, um, authenticity is really, really important. Um, so there, these generations have grown up with, technology and mobile devices. You know, I think I got my first cell phone when I was, I don't know, maybe 16, when in the US you just start to drive. So it was more of like a safety thing. And I could only basically do a very Call basic your text message. <laughs> and there were no data plans. So, But it's completely different. And so I think they're becoming much more sophisticated at an early age with, uh, Sifting through visual codes, uh, visual—you know—anything visual, from a video to advertising content. And so, I think the more authentic you are, and the more fearless you are, in in sort of taking a stand. um, Can you define fearless? (laughs) I mean, if you if you even think about what we do, sometimes it's—you know—moving away from classic beauty norms is, in a way, fearless. You know, that's a very prescriptive and prescribed way of looking at what beauty is. And so, you know, looking at all different sorts of people and all different sorts of looks and embracing them and, you know, showcasing them with your brand also becomes really, really powerful and fearless in a way. And so, you know, it's something as simple as that, that, you know, 15 years ago it would be like, no, that model has to be perfectly airbrushed, like she. And not have any pores like it's just
0: to be white slim and blonde
1: exactly whereas you know today but is that
0: is that thanks to Instagram or Facebook I, mean, I think it is but maybe you have data that I mean that includes I mean everybody now is a actor a celebrity in their <laughs> own you know um, in their own ways and so that's good you know there's body shapes and Races yeah. and colors and styles and everybody can do. And what Alessandro does, including in the stores, is that he gives you... He, his styling is particular, but then you go in the store and you can become very classic and wear it your own way. So is that what you guys are trying to demonstrate?
1: I think in many regards also like society is also changing, but it's also powered by this technology. So, yeah. you know, if you, are, if you identify with a certain group Like, if I think about myself growing up where I grew up, you know... Which is where? I grew up in New York, um, and my community was all very, very similar. So if you were, you know, if you identified with a different group, you wouldn't be able to find them physically within your community. But now you could find them online and connect with all these people and find find different communities and also learn about them and learn about people who might, you might identify with who are empowering and have, you know, really positive uh, things to say or, and, and viewpoints that you can also then, you know, gain some self-confidence from or a, a creative light bulb. So that didn't exist 20, 15 years ago, whereas for the next generation, it does. So I think you're also seeing that power of connectivity and idea sharing also making people more confident in the notion of self-expression And it's sort of eroding some of these historical barriers and the notion of self-expression that we've picked up at Gucci um, is really also really connected in that sense to what's happening in society. So it's a really good match-up.
0: The the amazing thing that shows how right you are is is that, I don't know if you know, but it happened very suddenly. So there was this change in top management and... um, and from Frida Giannini to Alessandro Michele in the space of a men's show that was put together in one week, um, the image changed so radically that most of the wholesalers in the world were saying, oh, that's completely bonkers. It will never sell. Gucci's dead, whatever. You know, now they all want <coughs> Gucci. If they don't have it, they like threaten to commit suicide if they don't get it. But anyway, so. The, the change was so radical, and yet it worked. And it worked, as Marco Bizzari says, I have a brand with 20,000 voices. you know. And once you get your people believing in it, then it's 20,000 voices that can go out to 1,000 people each. And so the machine is very powerful, and thanks to, again, digital, it's faster. But then... So do you see what I mean? You were there during this change, and I I'm really interested in knowing... You know, were you part of the people that were saying, finally, or was it hard to get, you know, adapted to this incredible machine that now it's so much faster and so much richer?
1: So, okay.
0: I'm pretty transparent as an
1: American, but um, listen, any transition makes people nervous. So, you know, a lot of people in the organization were meeting Marco for the first time. A lot of people in the organization already knew Alessandro and knew that he was, had a, a very you know, lovely personality that was super inclusive. So um, what people don't talk about so much about why we were able to move so quickly is also that almost all of us stayed the same group of people. So we were already working with each other. We just had a couple key changes at the top that sort of unlocked things. But then all the people, all the different frontline operators we're the, same. were the same. So we were able to run really, really fast. And then you also had an empowerment factor. So Marco moves incredibly fast, but also empowers people. So, you know, I remember within a week's time, they also completely sort of redid our showroom so that when the new collection arrived in our showroom for our buyers, it looked completely different than it had in the past. So, it looked like a brand new brand had sort of come there and that just inspired all of our buyers who were coming to the showroom just by having you know, a different environment where they would be working. Um, and it was a fast signal to the company. So all these things happened sequentially really, really fast. And again, it was a bit of organised chaos because in that first year we were also figuring out, you know, what are our new values? What do we mean? and Will it
0: work? Yeah.
1: And there were also internally a lot of sceptics who, you know, in the first few months, might have been skeptical, but then fell in love with what we were doing, like month four, five, six, and now are, you know, as always in love with Gucci and what what Alessandro does. But it also was an internal revolution in mm-hmm. many regards. So.
0: That's very interesting. So, um, do you think it's more interesting to work for a fashion brand like Gucci, Louis Vuitton? or for another reality like Shoe Studios? So is that for me or for him? I think it's more for me, right? sorry. <laughs> sorry. It's, uh, may I?
1: Yes, of course. <laughs> Do you want me to ask you the question? <laughs> it's fine.
0: Um, it's completely different. So one thing is being within, so in dealing with all what Jonathan just told us, you know, your team, the, the 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 codes of the brand and communicating with consistency and working with your uh, colleagues and stuff and then suddenly you go out and I still work with brands, smaller and mainly startups, but then you go out and you become a journalist. So you become that person that the brands want to please because they need you in a way. And so you get a different kind of power. So when you're the brand, you have the power to change things especially when you're at a certain level, when you're depressed, you have the power to actually inform, you know, a new generation to um, explain, to have an opinion on what's going on and, and say it's a Social Studio It's a very small company, um, we are literally 15 people uh, with a very visionary um, creative director, so Nick Knight, the photographer, uh, we are on camera, so whatever we say, it's immediate. You know, you say something that you didn't really want to say. We're very often live, so you know, you you learn to talk directly to your audience. But it's it's not about what's more interesting. It's really two type of life. What I thought interesting in my life was doing both. Actually, was going from one to the other and sometimes back. But back to Jonathan. Um, that's also for me. I'm sorry. Okay, that's for you. (laughs) Um, In which stage of the customer journey you think, I think it means digital,
1: ICTs,
0: are more effective? So that's really marketing. So I guess you don't need explanation.
1: No, I mean, so for digital communications now, um, it, it really depends on your brand. So... The first one of the things about a brand, and you know, you were just talking about startups. Do you have an awareness challenge? So, Gucci, we don't have an awareness challenge. We're one of Everybody the we're top the of mind globally in almost all markets. So, you know, you really have to understand where is your company within its life cycle to understand what your media mix should be. Mm-hmm. And then the next step is your customers' life cycle because. First is, do, your, do customers even know about you? At Gucci, we don't have that challenge. So then the next step is, you know, given where our customers are in their life cycle, what is the suite of, of media and different customer touch points that we're using? And for us, you know, we are using almost all of them because wherever there's a, a conversation about our brand, and we'd like to sort of be guiding or leading it. So... Uh, Digital. That's a very important yeah. point. and it's it's important for all brand managers. Like, if there's a conversation happening about your brand, your products, you want to be part of that conversation. So um, that's also why slowly, you know, our social media audience has grown around the world. We got much we got very quickly sophisticated with our social media practices and content generation, social media advertising in Western markets and then quickly expanded into Eastern markets. Um, and now we have a broad portfolio of social media networks and I think an audience of over 75 million uh, just from social media. And so- And
0: by social media you mean the three main, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But
1: globally also, so mm. WeChat and, and okay, the China. line. So when we aggregate everything around the world, it's over 75 million. So, you know, It's but
0: a medium-big country.
1: Th- yeah, it is, and that, that... Those numbers have grown significantly over the last, you know, four or five years. So I do think, in terms of, at what point do you use digital communications? I would say it's an always-on at this point. It's not something you decide, okay, I'm gonna activate it now. It's something that you should always have on. And um, you can. the thing that's great about digital is that it can also be reactive. So you should be proactively planning when to use it around key brand or key business moments. But then you can also use it to be reactive. So if I have a product that's not performing as as great as I would like it to, have, because maybe, again, maybe there's an awareness issue. My customers don't know that that product has been launched. You can use digital, and within two or three weeks, you can... You know, yeah, but when you're
0: Gucci, when you have an audience of seventy five million, so I guess no, but also I guess with social
1: with social advertising, you can also you know take any message and then target it to audiences. So, you know, mm. are you going after your own audience, so our 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 fans and followers on platforms, or you know, we can basically target anyone within the social. Depending on the platform, they have different targeting capabilities, but you can chase audiences digitally um, across different segments, geographies. It's it's really fun and fascinating actually.
0: Do you have um, engineers that analyze data or, or not engineer, create algorithms? or? Uh,
1: yeah, we work with some teams that internally and externally that work on data algorithms for us. Um, and, you know, my consumer analytics and insights team are some of the, they're really fascinating people because. So, w-
0: where do they come from professionally or?
1: All different backgrounds. Training. So some of them have uh, more more engineering background. Uh, other ones are more like mathematic backgrounds. A lot of them they spend their days looking at data. So th- you have to enjoy that as as your day. So you know I'm always it's conscious amazing. when rec- when I'm recruiting someone like that like. They have to have fun with that so you have
0: people that went to university studied mathematics and then they go and work for gucci that's pretty amazing i think
1: <laughs> or you that's know a new world. we also work you know with different consultants also and data scientists who support us um, and sort of can amplify our capabilities so it's something we're actively working on with caring too which is our parent company on, you know, how we better engage the data scientist community to unlock potentials that might not even be in our realm of awareness. So it's super fun too. So that's why having sort of these people who are like right brain, left brain, who can absorb the data and then like link it to, you know, not only the business, but also like the creative elements. It's those are that's really where the magic is happening. So what's
0: the role? Is there a role for AI? In fashion
1: artificial intelligence. Definitely. I think so, again, within luxury and fashion communications, you know, we have a set of rules and guidelines about, you know, what is it to be a luxury brand and how do you have a luxury conversation with your with your customers? So as long as you understand those elements, it's then about looking at the different technology opportunities around you and making sure that whatever is potentially presented to customers, um, it still doesn't violate those basic luxury tenants. And so AI could be used as something as simple for a page on your website to do product suggestions based on your browsing behavior. That could also translate to developing a learning algorithm that would you know, help optimize the content in your emails. But again, this is where you have the challenge of a uh, creative control versus uh, sort of the, what could be a beautiful outcome from artificial intelligence. So our email campaigns, for example, an email we sent to customers are highly curated. They're reviewed by a graphics department, a copy team, and you know, our merchants review them to make sure the product assortment is right. If all of a sudden we start to use AI to uh, customize that content to, they not be as a, to uh, a customer, you know, we still have to go through that strict curation process. So if the machine is recommending this, does it still look beautiful? (laughs) Because that again is something everyone expects from a luxury brand. So that's where you have to figure out when can the technology and sort of that creative element come together and find the right solution to be customer facing. And so those are the challenges of fashion, but that's also what's for me like more exciting. I'm really passionate about that. But if I was working for a car company, I'd be much less concerned about mixing and matching images of, of uh,
0: unless it's Tesla. Or yeah, Ferrari. exactly.
1: But I'd be, <clears throat> or, or you know, there are a lot of different companies where you could feel very hospitality is a great example. Like if you had a portfolio of hotels, like if you had an e-card featuring uh, an an email featuring, you know, three different hotel properties that were pulled together, you know, based on an algorithm, you'd feel kind of safe. But for us, mixing and matching products from different seasons and different categories you know it's much more uh, goes to that again curation process
0: very interesting Um, so where do small upcoming brands fit in this scenario maybe we said that a little bit but it would be nice to cover again is the current market a more fair place due to its digital transformation I guess it means that if it's easier today for a brand that is born tomorrow, to be. I mean that's what I tend to do and sometimes I believe it's not, but um, is it easier for a startup today, thanks to technology to get recognized, known, successful?
1: I think it's, it's always been super competitive in fashion and consumer products and I don't think that's changed. So I think you, know, you have a more democratic platform to access people, and to also enable people to shop your brands. Like you don't need a physical store anymore. So there's, is, there are a lot more democratic access points, but that also has opened up your competitive arena exactly. hugely. So, you know, it is easier to potentially use more tools to get awareness, but now you're fighting against a lot more people. Um, so I think what's happening is that the people who are really sophisticated in both, you know, networking, relationship building offline and then sophisticated in using the tools at their disposal and at the same time are, have good product to sell, are able to sort of rise above the fold but it's still a huge challenge and I, I think it's, it's hard for me to say if it's easier or not but uh, I think you just have to be much more sophisticated today to break through uh, the noise.
0: I think, I think democratic actually is the word because you, every, everybody has a possibility much more than when you needed to start with 100 million because otherwise you, know, you can have a store, you can have a page in famous folk, whatever, whatever. Today you can start with really little money, but as you were saying, if you don't have a product, that matter, I mean, there's so much stuff, there's so many things launched every year that that's useless, we don't need them, there's too many already, that if you don't have a great idea and a great product that stands out, just don't, don't bother, that's what I yeah. usually tell people, which is not very nice, but it's, it's the true. reality, you know, like, we don't need another black jacket badly cut, you yeah, know, we need, we need an idea, we need a narrative, we need a story, we need... Yeah, something, yeah, an experience or something to aspire to that nobody else thought about. And then in that case, if you do it right, with the right channel, with the right language, and again, you're authentic, then yes, it is more democratic. Is it easier? No. You still need to be good. Do we have another ten minutes? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so here there is a question about the digital impact on business. So I don't know if that's what whoever asked that meant, but what about the, log- I mean, it's not really what you do, but what about the business side of fashion? How much has production, logistic, you know, time to market, etc. cetera, change? Is that whoever asked this question wanted to know? <laughs> Either very shy person or they're not here. I didn't do this question, but it's very important for me. How do you motivate through digital and your wholesaler? Your seller, your sales, or your wholesaler. your
1: oh, wholesalers? Well, so I mean,
0: how do you talk to your wholesaler through? Or how do you motivate
1: in selling? Our wholesale. Yeah. Well, so yeah. the the wholesaler. The wholesalers make an investment in our inventory. So, they're purchasing our inventory, and so they should already be financially incentivized to sell it. So, if we're one of their biggest brands, which we normally are, yes. They want to they want to sell through the inventory their buyers have invested in globally. So, they're already motivated to make sure that each season our product is selling. So, they will feature Gucci prominently in their communication strategy, their editorial content. So the way the, the incentives within the wholesale system are, are already there because, you know, if the, the wholesalers wanna pay their rent and cover their operating costs, they have to sell our inventory. So luckily that incentive has already been in place. But what's happened is that each of the wholesalers now has developed their own brand identity, their, con- their way of uh, developing content. And so, you know, co-marketing in the past used to be uh, sh- uh, editorial shoot in a catalog.
0: Or, or the name of the wholesaler on a page campaign.
1: Exactly. So they were
0: paying half of it, right?
1: And so now it's much different with digital. It's an, a much higher frequency, but um, and we can also sometimes work with a partner and, and co-invest to sort of echo or amplify a key message for our brand because, you know, again, it comes down to audiences, so, you know, if, if we have a key message of a season that we want to tell, we can tell it on our own, but then if we work with really great partners, um, and they can then echo our messaging to their audiences, so sometimes we'll come in and we'll sort of spark the fire in that way, But back to your question, the the wholesale accounts should be very motivated to already sell our product just because they're investing in the inventory. Yes.
0: I was also thinking that uh, Gucci don't really have this problem. (laughs) I mean, right now, the, the, the brand is so hot in the real sense of the word. I mean, it's such a, I mean, it sells, it's. Itself almost without any, I mean, I know it's not true that it's without any effort, but the brand is so wanted that I guess you don't really need to incentivize wholesaler to take it and to sell it or am I saying? No, I mean,
1: we are one of the top brands for a lot of our, our retail partners, but then, you know, it's also really important for us to be in relevant and local specialty multi-brand boutique. so these are relationships and partnerships that go both ways. You Thank know, you it's, it's important for to, us yeah. to have really strong partners and also partners we trust in because, you know, customers don't distinguish where, where your brand is being featured. We're Gucci everywhere. So whether it's a fragrance Gucci counter in the department mm-hmm. store or whether you're in our, you know, in one of our flagship stores or whether you're shopping online with our brand, you know, there has to be a degree of consistency. And I think that that's also when choosing partners, it becomes really essential that, you know, these are really good relationships.
0: Yeah, because like the, the e-commerce, like the whole e not your own,
1: yeah.
0: I mean, yeah, you're Gucci, you can have a little introduction, paragraph, whatever, some photos, but then the product is photographed the way that the e-commerce do, right? So if you're on Matches or net a porter yes. or my Teresa, then it's their way of displaying your product.
1: Yeah, and it's the same way, you know, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, if, if a buyer was coming to our showroom and they had a multi-brand boutique and we didn't think it was qualitative enough... You would say no. You would say no. So, like, within just the same way you would evaluate a physical store, you evaluate a website. Is there e-commerce photography up to our standards if you know what's how are they showing their their product grades on their website if it's if it's a mess like we don't want to be in the mess so mm-hmm. you know um, so it's the same thing you evaluate you evaluate the quality of you know their business and their business practices and making sure that it's also aligned with you know our brand and our aesthetics and you know also down to the brand mix Are they can are we the only luxury brand or are they carrying you know, Other, yeah, are exactly. you in the right mix? Exactly. So.
0: Well, I have a question here that it's a little bit pressure on us because it's about studying or not, and we are in a university. Don't forget. So it says from a professional point of view, do you believe that having a master degree in digital fashion <laughs> communication <laughs> is more valuable than having two years of experience in the field of digital?
1: So. I went, back Naughty to, question. I went back to get my MBA and I studied luxury marketing and strategy and so I also used those two years to intern, to research and to work with all these different companies. So there is such a huge value in learning and being in a learning environment, uh, absorbing different, different uh, ideas and different concepts. And also having two years to network and evaluate, you know, all these different businesses. Uh, So that, in and of itself, it's so hard to do once you're working and you're busy. So taking the time apart to also then be a little bit more thoughtful about what your next steps are is hugely valuable. And so I, I do think just being in a sort of a learning environment is not something to ever regret. And also it's hard to measure how valuable it is in the moment. So you will probably like five years away, be like, oh, that was hugely instrumental for me. But you know, in the moment, you're like, oh, you're very conscious of the opportunity cost. Oh, I could be here, I could be there, I could be doing this. But um, I think also continuing education is, we, I talk about this a lot with some of my colleagues. Like, it's really weird that once you start working that you stop learning. Like, I would love to be taking a course every six months and continuing to get smarter in different subject matter areas. I can't do that with how I travel half the time for work. It'd be, but now with like e-learning, I could probably do it. Um, I'm trying to study for my Italian driver's license. So. It's my he's in Milan and
0: doesn't speak Italian. So yeah,
1: that's, that's taking up my time. But the notion of continuing education is so important and I- something you should always I
0: I, I, I'm with you, and I absolutely adore learning, but I do think that once you work and once you are in the workforce, you can still learn in a different way. No. So maybe you don't really go to university courses, but but even for me, interviewing some, someone or being interviewed is learning, because you find out things that you didn't think about, but also, you know, going to conferences. Sometimes I go to... Scientifical conferences and there's something to learn even if it's nothing I work with or going to the cinema, reading books, reading the press, I think there's learning everywhere. Um, when I was a student there were no courses in digital communication because by the way it didn't exist, um, but there were no courses in communication so we were all studying something else and then become communicators by chance or by trade or by whatever. I, learned everything I know about fashion and communication by doing it and I'm not saying it's right but you if you're a sponge and if you listen and if you observe and if you go to things like this then you learn and I think when a university offers you the possibility to have someone with the experience of Jonathan telling you things from within that's quite amazing and that's why I wish I had that when I was your age some of your age. Um, so I think both are valuable, yeah. I think interning also I, I'm i a bit against in having people working for too long for free, but I think interning in a company that really take it as a teaching environment it's invaluable. You can choose your mentors, it doesn't have to be your boss, it can be someone else, but also having a mentor I think it's invaluable.
1: That I cannot agree with more, I've, I've been very fortunate having Three different mentors throughout my career who've been really instrumental, um, in in everything I've accomplished. So finding a, you know, finding a mentor is a bit of luck, but also uh, it's pivotal, and you can look for them. Exactly,
0: it's your responsibility to find them. How how much time do we have? Five minutes? Yeah, ten minutes. Um, Wow, that's a long one. The piece of clothing. And so the material is essential, since it embodies the narrative and that's not that I can not read, but it's handwritten, so it's not easy. The narrative and that's the point where the communication starts, okay, so from the product. How to convey meanings and develop digital communication, keeping the importance of the materiality, how to render it? Ah. I don't know.
1: One. Well, no. So I have a very specific viewpoint about this, okay, and this was also a part of like the change in brand positioning. So in luxury, the quality factor is pretty consistent across our competitive set. Each of us is stronger yeah. in maybe one category or another, and, and or has we a longer history versus another. But the quality of the products is really, really high. So you're not going to have a competitively differentiated story if you're going in on quality. All of us can fight pretty strongly on that front. So I always say that story about construction, materiality, you know, and quality is always not your first foot in the door because you you won't be differentiated. It's a story that everybody has. We can all tell it. And, you know, some of these these houses have been around for hundreds of years, and you know, those stories are really rich. And certain customers actually really do relate to that story quite well. But I would say as a general strategy, when you're thinking about what do I communicate on first, you always want to think about it also in the back of your mind, like, is this competitively differentiated? And so the quality piece is, should always be there in luxury, but I've always argued that it shouldn't be the first story you want to tell to customers. Um,
0: it's like a taken.
1: Yeah, and I've, I've not, not everyone agrees with me on that. Um, but I've, I've strongly believed in that. Um, and
0: I, I do believe that in luxury you need a certain amount of artisanal or whatever yeah. skills or, you know, some categories more than others, like horlogerie, uh, you know, the complicated watches. If you don't know how to make it, you can make it. Yeah. Leave it more difficult than a shirt. Um, and I think, as you said very well, that those campaigns where you see, you know, someone stitching a bag or, you know, whatever doing with a jacket, it's a little bit boring today. I think telling a story and making you part of a, an environment that pleases you or making you part of something fun or entertaining or moving, it's probably more interesting because you probably go to a luxury store if you have the money for that and expect some quality, right? Well, I think this is it. Thank you. Thank Uh, you, Jonathan. Thank you.